Hi there, and welcome to the podcast for Tuesday, January 26th. Coming up, we'll talk travel bans and mandatory COVID testing at the airport. Plus, Twitter launches a crowdsource initiative to battle misinformation and why some companies and brands are bailing on this year's Super Bowl. All of that coming up right now. As always, plenty of COVID headlines to run down on this Tuesday afternoon. Let's welcome in Dr. Alon Vaisman. He's an infectious diseases expert and joins us now here on Global News Radio. Doctor, good afternoon. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. We just heard the premier uh, calling for a lockdown of our porous border, saying that roughly we've got like 30,000 people flying into Pearson with a 2.5% positivity uh, rate. Is it time for mandatory testing both pre and post uh, travel, uh, you know, coming into and uh, arriving at uh, Pearson? Or do you think, doctor, do we have to go even uh, further? There was talk yesterday about an outright travel ban. Yeah, it's an interesting question because there's two ways of looking at it. One is that is this going to be the measure that's going to put everything to end? Is it going to reduce all the transmission into Canada? The answer is no. And two, will it reduce things at least? Will it at least improve the situation to make it a little easier for hospitals to manage the volume? And probably the latter is true. Probably the more we can do to reduce the transmission into Canada from other nations, the better. So testing does make sense. Uh, We do have quarantine mandatory for all the people who travel, so it may be more about trying to make sure the quarantine is done well uh, on top of that, doing the testing with it. I was going to ask you about that. I mean, obviously, that's not a a medical issue or a medical question, but you are to quarantine for 14 days. And maybe is the answer there not only uh, mandatory or, you know, enhanced testing, but also to make sure that people are sticking by those quarantine rules? Exactly. So, yeah, the the value of testing is minimized if the quarantining is done very well. The testing adds a kind of additional layer to to make sure you're catching cases in the case that quarantining is not going well. So enforcing the quarantine for people who are returning who can quarantine is really critical. I want to ask you about vaccines as well. We just heard the premier mention uh, Pfizer. As we know, we're getting uh, zero vaccines from Pfizer this week and uh, 80% less than we were supposed to get next week. He is pointing, doctor, to Kalamazoo, Michigan, where they uh, have a plant uh, there, a facility there, and asking our American friends uh, for some help that maybe they could send some of the Pfizer uh, supply north of the uh, border. Uh, Is that feasible? Is that possible, do you think? I, it probably is possible. I just don't know whether technically that fits the criteria of the um, the agreement that's between the the federal government and the Pfizer. So there are, I'm, I imagine, there are spec, uh, stipulations in that agreement about when and how the doses are delivered to Canada. And it may be that their hands are tied with that agreement on when and how those uh, uh, doses are delivered. So whether it can be coming from America is is probably in the fine details of that contract. But I, I myself don't know the details of that. Sure. Uh, When we uh, think of the Pfizer vaccine, we think about it having to be stored at those sub-zero temperatures. But uh, I guess if it's coming from uh, overseas, if it was coming from Michigan, theoretically, it would be even easier to transport something that is uh, that that volatile, that type of cargo. Right. Certainly, it's feasible to transport it from anywhere in the world. The logistics is, is pretty crazy to think about, but that has already been worked out. And even transporting it across the Atlantic has already been worked out. So certainly from America, there is feasibility to do that. All right. Also making news this afternoon, uh, the EU, they have a threat to block the export of the AstraZeneca vaccine after the company said that there would be significant shortfalls to their original vaccine uh, schedule. Uh, What is your level of concern, doctor, when it comes to our supply of vaccine uh, here in Canada today and in the weeks coming? 
So the two approved uh, vaccines here, Pfizer and Moderna, uh, are the only two. AstraZeneca has not even been approved yet in Canada, and the data uh, to actually meet the criteria for approval has not been presented yet to the, to the federal government. So if there is a restriction in the doses of AstraZeneca going out from Europe, then at the moment it's not currently a problem. When you look at the other numbers coming from Moderna and Pfizer, that should make up the, the numbers that we need to vaccinate Canadians over the course of the next four months. So that restriction may not have a major effect, in the, at least in the short term. Also, uh, as well, Ontario, along with many other provinces, has had to uh, modify our vaccine rollout because of the uh, vac- vaccination supply uh, problems and uh, difficulties. Uh, yesterday, we heard the timeline for uh, LTC long-term care has been moved up 10 days and that the second dose will be uh, held back so it can be administered uh, on time. Uh, are we making, do you think, here in Ontario, I guess, the, the best of a bad hand? Yes, it is unfortunate that the uh, supply of the vaccine has been reduced due to the limitations from the factory in Europe, but they're doing what they can with available doses here to try to vaccinate as many of the high-risk individuals. And right from day one, those were identified to be the individuals living in long-term care. So given what we have here, we're the government, the provincial government and the local health units are doing their best to try to get as many of those high-risk individuals vaccinated with the limited supply we have currently. All right. And as well uh, trending is Dr. Fauci in the uh, U.S. who has come out uh, recommending that you wear not one but two face masks. Uh, in your opinion, doctor, are two masks, are they better than one? It's unclear whether there's a lot of science to support using uh, two additional masks at this time. We certainly have a lot of experience in Canada using one mask in all of our healthcare facilities, facilities, and we haven't seen, as a result of that, large outbreaks in our healthcare facilities due to that deficiency. The question becomes whether that uh, a recommendation is more applicable to non-healthcare settings, whether in the public, given that some individuals may not be wearing their mask properly or not have adequate masks, whether adding that second mask adds more protection, but that's I still I think that's still yet to be definitively answered. All right, and uh, just finally, I want to go back to the uh, premier, if I can, and get your reaction to uh, the premier uh, kind of placing the blame, if you will, uh, on travel when it comes to our uh, caseload and, of course, uh, variants uh, now in Ontario and really throughout uh, Canada. I mean, is that where we should be, do you think, a doctor, uh, placing our uh, emphasis when it comes to uh, lowering the COVID uh, case uh, load, when we look at uh, what's going on in uh, long-term care, uh, concerns uh, at, at schools and community spread, all that still need to be dealt with? Are, are we, and is the government, do you think, uh, putting the emphasis where it needs to be? I think the travel question is, is it makes up a small part of the overall transmission in the population in Ontario. When you look at the two, lock, the two major lockdowns in phase one and phase two, that was what uh, is effective. That's what is dropping the cases. Even in phase two, we're seeing a plateauing about one or about seven to ten days ago when the case is starting to fall now, and it wasn't related to travel restrictions that did that. So although travel likely contributes a small portion of cases, it's not the main thing. And the main issue is really the lockdown measures that were imposed uh, in December and in January again. All right. And to keep up with those, of course, the stay-at-home order, as we know, was just uh, extended yesterday for a couple of weeks. Yes, exactly. So things are going... The, the news now is very optimistic over the last seven days or so. So as long as we continue with what we're doing, we can hopefully see some improvement uh, over the next few weeks. All right. Dr. Vaisman, really appreciate the time. As always, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Take care. You as well.
Dr. Alon Vaisman is an infectious diseases expert. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not on TikTok either. I know of TikTok, but I'm not on it. But this is May Archie. She's a TikToker with a substantial following, and her latest photo has gone uh, viral. Uh, Mary, I, yeah. sorry, we got you now. Yeah, are, are you on TikTok? Yeah. Are you following this May Archie? <laughs> I, I, I have to admit, no. Of course, I know what TikTok is, and I love the story. But uh, what a crazy uh, photo bomb. Yeah, she posted this photo that she was walking in New York City not too long ago. And it turns out she was photobombed by one of the world's biggest celebrities, none other than Sir Paul McCartney. And Mary, she claims that she had absolutely no idea that Sir Paul was uh, over her shoulder. She uh, kind of snapped a, a selfie of herself. Uh, as she was crossing the road, and if you have a look at this uh, photo, it, it is somewhat reminiscent, actually, of the Beatles' famous Abbey Road album cover, because there's uh, Sir Paul just uh, going through the crosswalk. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't have staged this. And, you know, how would you actually wrangle Paul McCartney and say, hey, I'd like to do this picture? He goes, oh, the, the one on the street? No, uh, I, I got all this stuff I got to do, you know. But here he is. It's all just happening in the moment. He's in the shot. She's getting someone to take a picture, and it's just like the album cover. So yeah. cool. And to make this story even more fantastic and to file this under, I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. She was actually yeah. there in New York City at the Met attending an exhibit on, you guessed it, the Beatles. Unbelievable. <laughs> and she missed Sir Paul McCartney walking right by her, only noticed it after she looked at the photo a little later on. My question, though, is what was Sir Paul doing there? Is he going to his own exhibit? Who knows? Yeah, maybe seeing, you know, maybe trying to photobomb all kinds of people and promote the exhibit. And, <laughs> hey, did you, did I really see Paul McCartney? Was that Paul? Was that Sir McCartney? Did I see him outside the, you know, the exhibit? I, what a great idea. What a great, like, sort of marketing fun thing to do. Yeah, or, you know, maybe that's the one place that he just wouldn't be recognized because you would not expect to see Paul McCartney at a Beatles exhibit. You would probably see him. I mean, again, she claimed she didn't even notice him till afterwards, and then when she saw the photo and realized that he'd kind of photobombed her. But would you think if you saw somebody that sort of, kind of looked like maybe was Paul McCartney and you were at a Beatles exhibit, you'd go, no, that's not Paul McCartney. <laughs> right, we used to do the double take. Huh? What? Huh? <laughs> Who is that? I think exactly. I, I would never believe that it's Sir Paul, Paul McCartney at a Beatles exhibit. Okay, let's go from a TikTok to Twitter. Because it was a few weeks ago, of course, that to Twitter pulled the plug on one Donald Trump. They have now banned Mike Lindell, who is the MyPillow CEO. And as concern continues to mount over the amount of misinformation, Twitter is now set to turn to you for help. And for more on this and to help us out, here's our tech expert, Adam Oldfield. He joins us here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Adam, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. All right, tell us about this uh, plan uh, Twitter's got. Uh, this is something they're calling uh, Birdwatch? Best name ever. That's probably <laughs> the best way you could describe how to, uh, how to use Twitter and identify it as to how to find all those misinformation posts that are online right now. And, and Twitter had to come up with something. I mean, they, they attempted during the election that they were going to monitor any kind of election elements that were maybe falsified or uh, were propaganda or mis misleading and weren't factual based. They tried that. Uh, and, it, and it kind of meant 
that little fanfare. Didn't quite actually hit it. Obviously, uh, as you uh, uh, brought up, the President Trump was actually just taken offline from Twitter. It was like, okay, you know what? No matter what you say, whatever said, it doesn't matter. We're taking you off. Um, so Birdwatch is a new pilot project. It's actually it's actually pretty smart, to be honest with you, Jeff. They've created a separate system within Twitter um, that you can sign up and you can be able to now mark a tweet. It gives the users the ability to speak out or comment as to what's factual and what's not, similar to like how Wikipedia works. So if you try to post something or comment or bring up some kind of information pertaining to what you feel is facts, others can be able to uh, challenge it or uh, fix it or comment on it. So this Birdwatch allows anybody who wants to tweet information um, will now allow people to comment on it, and they can now challenge it in any way possible. So it's an algorithm that's going to be uh, tested currently, um, and like I said, it works like Wikipedia. So anytime you tweet, whether you're a celebrity, a politician, this is Twitter's answer to how can we fact check a lot of the data that's being shared through our social media channel. Okay, is this an answer? Is it a good plan, do you think? Or do you think that Twitter is maybe just taking what should be their responsibility and kind of pushing it off onto the rest of us, onto the users of Twitter? I think Twitter's, it's kind of like this. If you were sitting in a boardroom and they were going, okay, how do we be able to check 50 trillion tweets, guys? And we got to make sure they're all real. Uh, who do we hire to do that? And the answer is you couldn't afford to hire anyone. So what they're doing is they're going, okay, well, why don't we just let everyone who tweets, if they want to challenge it, let them do the research and, and put the answer to it. So I think this is something which Twitter has done uh, objectively because marking what they think through a computer algorithm as falsified or not true is not necessarily wasn't working very well. Some things were wrong. It was obviously letting a lot of things squeeze through their algorithm. This puts the responsibility to the people. Um, now, if we look at this and think, is it going to be successful? Uh, Wikipedia is very successful. It's done very well with fact checking, making sure the content is relevant, it's accurate, uh, and is able to come off uh, quickly if it is incorrect. So giving the power to the people is actually probably a very good move on Twitter's side. And further, again, I think there's going to be a lot of changes in the year 2021 when it comes to the Fed or the, uh, the Senate under the Biden administration. They're going to come down hard on all these social media platforms. So Twitter's attempt to come out with this system to create, uh, to create ability to give people uh, a challenge to comment and share those comments, I think this is a smart move on Twitter's part. Okay, but is it, again, good enough, do you think? When we think about the impact that misinformation is uh, having, can have on us uh, as a society, I mean, do we need to do more? Do we need to do better, do you think, here, other than just kind of rely on Twitter users to go, hey, I don't think that that's right. And, I mean, are Twitter users, are they really the final arbiter of what is truthful, what is not, what is fact, what is uh, fiction? I mean, is anybody and everybody a, a fact checker? Because I'm sensing there could be problems down the road if somebody tweets something that you just disagree with it might still be fact but because you disagree with it you're flagging it now yeah 
Yeah, I mean, I'm going to agree. I'm going to comment and say, yes, you're right. It's not going to fix the bigger problem. I mean, if you take a look at that and say, well, doesn't Facebook do that? Because every time someone posts something on Facebook, there's just a million comments of people uh, uh, challenging whether it's real or not. So I kind of use this as a, again, it's just launched though, Jeff. So I haven't had a chance to really dive in and take a look at it and determine, okay, who's getting the power of truth to be able to justify the judge, so to speak, is uh, who gets to be the proper judge to justify whether it's right or not is still to be subjective. But I think what this uh, what they're trying to do is create a bit of a hey, whatever you tweet doesn't necessarily become gospel. So it's uh, it's an element of where again they're trying to give. Uh, I'll call it comments. That's not fair to determine it, but it gives a bit of a challenge. Anything you want to tweet can be challenged, and if you're going to challenge it, give your rationale for why you challenge it. Back it back, back it up with facts. Don't just make an opinion. You're going to need to justify what you state in Twitter and be able to sub, uh, substantiate it with enough content that people can be able to go, okay, what you're saying, I'm willing to share, or I'm willing to reflect on if this is real or not. Yeah, do you think the ultimate answer is, and I don't think this is the complete answer, but maybe the ultimate answer when it comes to misinformation being spread online and on Twitter is just to do away with uh, anonymous tweets or anonymity, that uh, you have to own what you say? That is there any way to kind of verify or have to prove that uh, you are this person uh, on Twitter? Well, that's what Birdwatch is doing at this stage of the game. They're going to be uh, validating that if you do want to comment or, or reference, you have to confirm your phone number and confirm your email. Right now, anyone can sign up with a Twitter. You can be anonymous. You can more or less speak as you will. Uh, you can have a, a, a fair name out there in the world. So Birdwatch is trying to justify that anyone commenting has to be real or uh, has to you know, reference themselves as, a, as, a, as an identity that could be uh, challenged, so to speak, or if you're going to comment we have to know who you are yeah so but if twitter story adam just did away with uh, anonymous uh, tweeting that you had to prove and verify who you were wouldn't that clean up a lot of this do you think I don't know. I don't think so, Jeff. I think what it does is it just because there's a lot of people out there that I know still out, uh, are more than happy to say who they are, and they'll just come out and say, well, I'm entitled to freedom of speech, so I should be able to say anything I want to say, whether it's right or wrong or otherwise. I'm entitled to my opinion. Now, again, who's justifying and proving that? I mean, if, it, if a broadcaster like yourself said, I'm just going to say whatever I want, anytime I want to do it, and I'm not going to fact check it otherwise, you would be challenged. The whole broadcasting uh, uh, global radio would be under scrutiny, under the CRTC. I think the question still is, is there going to be a regulatory body when it comes to social media? That's yet to be determined. All right. And uh, by the way, again, this is just something that is in the testing stages uh, right now. Twitter's trying this out in uh, different cities, different markets. Well, right now it's a pilot project across all of uh, the Twitter platforms. So you can sign up, uh, address, or confirm your identity, and then you'll be able to uh, uh, reference or take a tweet and put it into a bird watch. Uh, so anyone on Twitter right now, the way it works is if you tweet on, on Twitter, uh, comment, you can flag it. You can either mark it as inappropriate, you can put it as spam, and there's a little tag at the bottom that says subject to bird, uh, uh, bird watch. Uh, that's where if you signed up, you can put your comments in, uh, or if you're in Twitter, you'll soon be able to see those comments underneath each of the tweets that are listed.
I'm with you, though. I do like the title. It's pretty clever, uh, Birdwatch. <laughs> Adam, thanks as always. Appreciate the time this afternoon. My pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. Take All right. Care. Stay well. You take care, too. There's Adam Oldfield, our tech expert. Well, it's a pretty good matchup this year's Super Bowl. we got the Bucks versus the Chiefs. We've got Tom Brady versus Patrick Mahomes. But one matchup we will not be seeing this year is Coke versus Pepsi. That's right. Many brands are actually taking a pass on the big game this year. And joining us now for more on this is Mike Leon, branding expert, president of Brand Heroes Marketing. He joins us on Global News Radio. Mike, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. All right. What's going on here? What's the deal? Why are a lot of big companies like Coke, Pepsi, Budweiser, Budweiser, they're all saying thanks, but no thanks to the Super Bowl this year? Well, you know what, Jeff? At $5.5 million per 30-second spot, I think a lot of companies are looking at the optics of it being a pandemic and just deciding it just may not hit the right notes this year to be involved. You know, $5.5 million for 30 seconds, that makes the MacArthur Show look like an even bigger bargain, really. <laughs> Budweiser, Coke, Pepsi, come on down. Uh, we'll take you. We'll take you, right? <laughs> yeah. So is it the fact that we're in the midst of the second wave and the pandemic and they feel that, uh, I know, the timing just isn't right to kind of be uh, pushing beer and soda and some other products? I think so. You know, it's a really delicate balance, Jeff, because I think, like, you know, on one hand, in, you know, in hard times, I think people in general, and I know I'm generalizing, but anecdotally, I think we take comfort in the nostalgia. Can we take comfort in the things that kind of help bring that comfort? But, you know, the Super Bowl has always been this, like, big, high-adrenaline, go-big-or-go-home kind of event. And the thing is, is, you know, with everybody staying home, I think it's really hard for brands to justify going big. And I think the, the the worry with that is that, you know, you spend a lot of money when your consumers are having trouble making ends meet. Is that going to come across as tone deaf? And I think a lot of brands are very, very sensitive to that right now. Well, I don't think you can do the kind of, uh, and I'm thinking of a classic uh, Super Bowl ad like the, what's up, guys, <laughs> this year. But couldn't these brands, and there's certain brands that are really good at this, right? Like capturing uh, the moment and saying, hey, you know, we've uh, always been there together. We'll get through this uh, together. Kind of pull on the uh, heartstrings, as it were, and come up with uh, what could be a, a really great and touching ad for the Times, Mike? You know what? You definitely can, Jeff. But I guess I wonder, you know, is the Super Bowl the right form for that? Because, you know, sure, you can do all that type of stuff. And then you go back to the game, which is very, like, high energy. So are there other vehicles where you can you can send that kind of message? I think the other thing is, and maybe this is a little cynical of me, but, you know, I also wonder, pandemic or not, if some brands are waking up to the idea that maybe they don't need the Super Bowl. And, you know, we, we've seen this in the past, and Skittles was a big example where they actually decided to sit out the Super Bowl, and in its place, they created a one-day Broadway musical, and that outperformed their previous ads, Jeff. So just finding other ways to connect. You know, I'd hate to be the uh, person for the NFL to have to come into the boardroom and go, we just lost Skittles. Skittles is out. No. <laughs> Do a Broadway musical. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, having said that, I mean, the power of the Super Bowl, Mike, I mean, it's 100 million plus uh, around the world, right, that watch this thing, uh, if not more. Maybe I've got that wrong. Maybe it's even just 100 million in the U.S. alone and an even bigger worldwide audience. It's one of, if not the biggest TV events uh, of the year. It's kind of hard to say no to that sort of attention. Well, you know what? You're right. But, you know, I think like if we look at this story from another layer as well, look at Bud, for example. Bud Light is 
not the only brand from Budweiser and their parent company that's appearing in the Super Bowl. So I think when you kind of look at this as like a house of cards or, or you know, a, a kind of portfolio option, there's other ways to connect. So I think there's going to be a ton of goodwill for Bud Light because they're they're taking the money they would have spent and they're putting it towards uh, you know, uh, positive not-for-profits that help with the fight against COVID-19. But then they have other brands that are also going to be seen during the Super Bowl itself. So I think that alone helps kind of create this halo effect around all the brands. At the end of the day, you're right, though. The Super Bowl is a huge event, but I think this is a challenge that professional sports has experienced overall, that, you know, when your brand is around celebration and togetherness and you can't actually physically be together, it creates a, a bit of a contradiction in terms when you're trying to market it. So I think they're just trying to straddle a very, very fine line right now. Does this also talk about where we are right now when it comes to the economy and a lot of companies? I mean, you mentioned that $5.5 million price tag for just 30 seconds. I mean, that's a lot to chew on for even the biggest companies to chew down on, something like that, a $5.5 million 30-second ad. And, you know, there might be some companies, a lot of companies, their revenues are down. They've had to let workers uh, go, unfortunately, and maybe just uh, the timing isn't right. Hundred percent, and you know, there, there's some industries that are included in that that we never thought would even be imaginably possible to to go through tough times. Like, you know, who thought before the pandemic that Disney was going to have financial issues or that Coke was going to suffer financial issues? But both of those companies have experienced major difficulties because of the way that they sell. So much of Coke's revenue comes from live events. So when people aren't going to live events, they're not buying Coke. And same with Disney theme parks. So you're right. You know, I think part of this is a cost-cutting measure as well. I think part of this is also an exercise in trying to figure out the right way to communicate with audiences. And I think, you know, there's a healthy part of me that kind of thinks too, Jeff, that part of this is also companies saying, you know what, we're not sure the Super Bowl is the only game in town, so maybe this is an excuse to try other options. Do you think that we're really seeing maybe a changing of the guard here, that we're going to look back five, seven years from now to the uh, pandemic Super Bowl as uh, something that really changed uh, how we look at the Super Bowl and Super Bowl advertising? I think it will change. Now, does that mean that people aren't going to, you know, brands are going to escape in droves from the Super Bowl? Absolutely not. You know, it's going to be a huge venue. It's going to continue to be a huge venue. But, you know, there there's great examples, and Skittles was one of them, but there's great examples of brands that come up with these anti-Super Bowl spots to try and steal a little bit of that limelight, and it works. And it works for way less than running a Super Bowl ad. So, I think this is definitely going to open up a new avenue. And I think the cautionary tale for the Super Bowl is that they've got to really make sure that, you know, what they are truly offering is staying with the times, which is something that nobody ever would have said prior to this. So there's a lot of things that are changing right now. Yeah, just finally, Mike, I'm also sort of wondering aloud because I'm fascinated by marketing and advertising and what uh, folks like yourself uh, do, the art of persuasion. And I just, I can't help but think, how much time, effort, creativity goes into that $5.5 million 30-second Super Bowl ad, and perhaps the way things have been the last uh, you know, 8, 9, uh, 10 months, a lot of companies have had to be nimble, find different ways of uh, doing business, and maybe they just haven't been able to get together like they normally would, the creative process, and, and really you know, churn out that ad that they really feel it's going to be worth the money. You know what, Jeff, I think that's an excellent point because, you know, you're right. Like, it's one thing to pay for the, the ad time. It's another thing to actually make the ad. And the process of creating an ad has become a lot more difficult this year in COVID times. It's taking a lot more time. There's a lot more regulations around it. It's taking a lot more money to actually create it. 
And, you know, the creative process itself has, has been challenged greatly. So I think that is a big driver as well, too. But, you know, it's funny, you got me thinking that, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, the ad, the, the idea of the Super Bowl is such a big spectacle. It's like the Oscars. People turn up just to see what people are wearing on the red carpet. And people watch the game because they love the game, but they want to see the ad. So I think it will come back. It's just this year a lot of brands are sitting it out. All right, Mike, appreciate the time. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. All right, have a great one. Yeah, you as well. Mike Leon, branding expert, president of Brand Heroes Marketing on the Super Bowl, which is roughly about a week and a half away now, but it sounds like we won't be seeing uh, all of those uh, Super Bowl ads that everybody is uh, talking about, or at least not as many as previous years on the morning after.